0: Yeah, no, it's, it's still a good film. <laughs> I know. Shocking. It's funny to think that the 46th best-selling film of all time is actually good. Or the 11th best-selling animated film of all time. Or the 3rd best-selling Disney animated film. Or the best-selling traditional animated film. <laughs> Depending on how you look at that. <clears throat> yeah, this film... Whew, this is definitely a Star Wars film. Now, if you've been following this series so far, you'll notice that I've pointed out contradictions and variances, but on the off chance, this is the first one you're watching. Allow me to elucidate very quickly. Some films just bumble completely into position. They, they were having troubled production and issues, and none of the pieces were in place, and constant problems. And then some films had all of the pieces in place, and everything was ready to go, and it was a, it was a perfect, awesome, right? I usually call these Star Warses and Jurassic Parks, and, I mean, it just keeps coming up because this film was a Star Wars. This film, there are people who actually thought, no joke, that the production of this film was literally cursed because of how many issues they were having. So, the first and most obvious problem, if it's not obvious by now, I've been kind of pointing out, they kind of do this layered thing, where they do a film, and then another film, and then another film, and then another film, so it's always they're always kind of a little bit offset with their studio. And at this point in history, and for all the films we've covered so far, Disney had two dominant animation teams, basically. And the A team was the one working on the ones that were the big pictures, and the B team were working on the lesser pictures, right? That trend would go away effectively with this film and the next film, in which case both teams would get the same political and financial backing. But that trend was still going as of this film and the next film, Pocahontas, by the way. Why? Well, everyone thought Pocahontas was going to be the big Disney film. For those of you who don't remember me pointing this out, Beauty and the Beast actually got an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture, which is the first and is arguably to this day the only time that happened, since nowadays there's an animated picture category, so it's actually impossible for a film to get that now because it's got its own category. But, uh they were actually thinking Pocahontas would be the next big you know, Academy Award-winning film. So they threw everything into that. Now, I'll talk more about that when we get there. But that's relevant because that meant all of those resources were taken away from Lion King. This is. I'm just going to share two direct quotes about this. And I quote, The story wasn't very good, so why would you want to work on it? And I don't know who is going to want to watch that one with regards to Lion King. People were looking at it like, no, that, that's, a, that's a dud. That's going to fail and fumble. Nobody gives a crap. And they had multiple rewrites of the story. They lost directors. Plural. While they were in the middle of production, the 1994 Northridge quake hit. I only know about that one because some of my family members were actually hit by that one. I was living in Northern California at the time, but a lot of my family was in Southern California at that point in history. (laughs) So, yeah, it it was just thing after thing after thing kept happening. This is in addition to the fact that there was the whole Kimba the White Lion problem. I've decided after some consideration, I'm just not going to comment on that. Because... The studio, not, not Disney, the Kimba, the White Lines, I forget their name, please forgive me. Their studio actually flat out said, we considered suing Disney, and then we looked at their legal team and said, nope. I'm being slightly facetious, but that is what happened. They looked at what they would be up against, legally speaking, and decided, nah, that's, that's not worth the effort, time, and money. So we're just going to peace out of that one. There's a lot that can be dug into that, but, I mean, you can find dozens of people who have done nothing but discuss that connection. Go go look it up on the Internet. For now, what I do want to talk about is how they... Were, so, you might be thinking, hang on, Lord, why was everyone thinking Lion King was going to be a bomb? Quick question before I go any forward, further forward. Of the films in the Disney Renaissance, how many of you pick Lion King as your favorite? Now... I refuse to vote on this cuz I haven't seen the later ones yet, but from memory Lion King is on top and I have just rewatched the first four or whatever. Let's see, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King. Yeah, so of these four, Lion King sits firmly on top. But um I mean, this film made, I decided to write this down just to make the point 422.8 million domestic and 968.5 million worldwide. That's almost a billion in theatrical sales in 1994. I know, financial success isn't necessarily indicative of critical success, but I'm making the point because this is a damn good film. Why is it such a good film? Well, I have a theory. See, they had less people, less money, less resources, uh, less everything. They had less support from the studio. They always had to make do with what they had. And you probably already see where I'm going with this. It is my opinion that the people who were left, or the people who were forced to work on this, were like, Okay. Well. And they just threw themselves into it. Because of the limitations, they became more creative. That is my opinion. It is worth noting that the animators especially they effectively made it so that one major this is this wasn't anything new but each major animator took over one character and they as an aggregate spent several uh, weeks actually going to zoos and and actually there was some of the crew actually went to Africa to study how they work and the muscle movement and all that stuff to animate it as well as possible and they made sure that each one was distinct from the other in terms of how they move and how they function. And, of course, they brought in a lot of uh some really good sound designers and directors. And, naturally, um this guy you've probably never heard of called Elton John, as well as another guy you've probably never heard of called Hans Zimmer. Now, I know Hans Zimmer is technically the company studio, not just the person, but it both apply equally here. I wasn't able to actually clarify if it was the person or the studio. The, the notes were pretty vague in the interviews. They just say Hans Zimmer. But the point being, they brought in some interesting firepower for this one and all of that firepower was very committed and very creative therein lies the point they were given a shoestring budget and they made primer an animated version right anyways so so we talk about uh, actually i'm sorry there's one other big thing i actually forgot about this there's one other thing Uh, That was a very substantial shift from how Disney had operated basically forever up until now. They did not want to anthropomorphize the animals. Now, there are occasional individual exceptions to this, but going as far back as Snow White in some ways, Disney has always been trying to anthropomorphize animals to make it as, as if they are as humanistic as possible. Now... Snow White didn't really do that, and you could fairly bring that point, but this has been a long standing Disney trend. So the the idea and approach, as was positive for this film, to just have them be animals, had a lot of people going Wait, what? You want us to do you want them to just be a lion. Not walking around, you know, not Zootopia, but just a lion. Yeah. Okay. And that was another thing that turned a lot of people off of it. As you might imagine, though, the people who left, they were pretty interested in the idea. Now, funny story, I mentioned Zimmer. Zimmer and John, that is to say Hans Zimmer and Elton John, both actually collaborated on the intro, the big song, you know, Circle of Life. Now, What's funny is originally there was going to be a narration over that. That probably sounds you know logical because if you're paying attention, both Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin had that kind of intro narration. Here's how the film works. But they were like, eh, give us a bit, and so they give they did the whole work and the whole piece, and they're like, all right, you can just slice this up as you need to to add in you know narration or whatever. So the studio, you know, the actual animators and, and directors watched it and were like. Let's keep this as is. (laughs) This, this is just good. Let's just, we don't want to interrupt this at all. So what happened is the animators decided to do something that I have started referring to as R2-D2 effect. When they lacked the ability to communicate, they used movement, animation, you know, expressiveness, and they basically tried to get across the early, the opening narration without a single line of dialogue, which they got across pretty well. You've got you've got the planes, You've got you know. You've got the variant animals. They exist with each coexist with each other to some extent or another. There's the giant rock, which clearly looks like a throne. There's the big uh, lion king. There's the lion queen. There's this tiny little lion cub. Ah, we get everything we need to without a line of dialogue. Works pretty well. There's a lot of very little creative choices like that throughout this film that I think help to make it better than it otherwise would have been and certainly helped to make it more interesting than, just to be blunt, Pocahontas. Now granted, I haven't watched Pocahontas in years. I'll be watching it tomorrow, actually, since it's very late right now, and this is the last video I'm recording today. But, Pocahontas usually made things overt. Someone would say, I feel such and such. Whereas, in Lion King, they show such and such. Anyways, so the intro scene uh, does the usual job of establishing the you know basically the main setup but the problem is see this lion king like aladdin kind of differentiates itself from the typical pattern so in, it it does establish quite a few characters but most of those are all you know it just we don't really have context for it the first character we get any real characterization for is scar the villain which if you're paying attention that's also what aladdin did sense in a trend here. Now... One of the interesting things is that the film does an extremely brief discussion on the nature of what it's like to be a predator in a world where you can literally talk to the people you're eating. There's, There's no nice way to put that, is there, really? Now, the film actually goes out of its way to not show most of the prey animals as actually, you know, discussing and talking, but we know they exist, and if nothing else, Timon and Pumbaa can talk just fine, and so can Zazu. But you'll notice they do make a point of having, like, the zebras not talk, and the elephants not talk, and blah, 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 blah. Anyways. But the way it's kind of presented is something I want to bring up later. I just wanted to mention that right up front, that they do acknowledge the predation thing. But unlike, say, Little Mermaid, it's not some horrible thing. It's just part of how things are, and we just kind of accept that. I'll come back to that point later. What I do want to mention next, though, is Scar, well, he's interesting. Because I can't really figure him out, as weird as that sounds. I do have a new theory about him. And that theory is that he's not intelligent. Now, I know that's a strange thing to comment on, because even he himself says that he is the brains of the family, and Muthos is the dumb one. But after actually carefully examining him and his actions, I've decided he is actually not intelligent at all. He thinks he is. He's got the ego, but he doesn't actually have the brains to back it up. Well, that sounds familiar. I can't imagine why. Quick, actually, a little bit of interesting thing. Scar, in all of his scenes, has his claws showing. I always love noticing these little details that they throw in to help just add a tiny bit of visual distinction to characterization in these films that I never noticed before. Pay attention, you'll see what I mean. His his claws are always visible to some extent or another. Anyways, so, Scar is someone who is willing to be incredibly overt in his disdain for Mufasa, and how he should be the one in charge, but at the same time, he does it in a way that's not really all that threatening... It's an interesting dynamic. He openly threatens Mufasa in a way that makes clear that he has no intention of actually carrying through that threat. Let me put it this another way. How many of you have ever worked in an office space or any kind of, you know, job, really, where someone's like, man, I'd do a much better job as a manager. If only I were manager. Oh, I'd I'd turn this place around. And they're willing to say that in front of the manager. It's kind of similar to that. Just a little more overtly menacing. I mean, his name is Scar, for God's sakes. Anywho. <clears throat> so then we start discussing politics. Because, of course, we do. Now, this this one I have... I have to kind of take a step back here and admit that this is probably where the script actually falls apart the most. There's actually three major points where the script falls apart. And they're actually all related. It's the cycle of life itself, the politics of the interaction of the animals... And the ending, which we'll get to when we get there. And all three of those things are connected. So I'm imagining that was just a weak point of the script. See, the problem is, they have lions who eat people. And by people, I mean other people who can talk, as I already talked about. And there's no real escaping that. Zootopia but got away with that by not even showing it at all. All the predators and prey, they just, they don't show how they eat. And when asked off camera, they just talk about, how, oh yeah, I know, there's, there's this like bug paste thing they eat. And it's like, okay. <laughs> they just basically hand wave the issue away. Because the moment you make them capable of talking, you have an issue, especially for a film that's designed to be viewed by children. Now... They do still kind of skirt the issue a little bit, but the reason the politics gets involved is because, well, here's my theory. I think what we're seeing is not the kingdom of the lions. I think what we're seeing is one particular, let's call it region, and the way that everyone there politically reacts to each other. Now, I'm probably explaining this badly, so let me try again. When we think of politics when it comes to governmental and intrigue and whatever, we usually think of, you know, kingdoms and knighthood and flags and landed and military wars and political marriages, all that fun stuff. But all of that is, for lack of a better way to put it, very organized. There's a, there's a pattern, there's a structure, there's a hierarchy, right? And that helps to define the political framework. The problem is just about everything we do as human beings is political to some extent or another. It's just, it, it takes many different ways. You know, office politics, family politics, romantic politics, right? It's all a thing. So here what we're seeing, in my opinion, and this is my big theory, is animal politics. Sure, they call him the king, but ultimately he is the king of the lions. It's just that the lions, by ver- their very nature-, nature, are effectively the apex predators of this particular area. So what they say tends to go not because there's a structure or a hierarchy, but because they can kill anyone who disagrees with them. This then leads to the idea that they probably have some kind of tribute coordination system where they don't actually go out of the way to murder random people in order to eat them, but rather there's probably something more structured there. Either people are willing to accept being murdered, that's a possibility, which is kind of what a lot of people joke about over the years, but what I think is more likely is they go after the people who are shall we say older on on in the years or yeah, are basically sacrificed by their particular tribe in order to feed the, the you know the apex predators you know in other words you go die to be their food and that way they won't come after us to eat whoever that kind of a system now that sounds pretty dark which is probably why it's not really on camera and remember There is a part where Simba Simba actually flat out talks about eating a zebra. You know, those cute, lovable zebras that were in the dance number following his orders. You remember that? I just can't wait to be king. Yeah. A zebra is also, I believe, what, uh, it could have been a wildebeest, is what uh, Scar feeds to the hyenas later. So, yeah. Now, here's the thing. This all sounds kind of horrible, and it certainly is, but what you kind of get is the really weird impression that it's necessary. Hear me out. Usually, politics involves resources. Actually, resources and services, if we're being honest. So, for the most part, you know, we have brilliance of things that we as human beings care about when it comes to resources. Things that we value. And those things vary wildly from person to person, group to group, area to area. All the people in the Pride Lands care about food. And thus food is effectively the only real resource here. It's the only thing to bargain with, and it's the only thing to bargain for. This then leads to this kind of cycle, because the idea here, hear me out, this leads to the pattern concept, is that he talks about the cycle of life. The definition he gives is, is frankly terrible. But if I was to put it in a different way, the lions don't overhunt; they hunt what they need and nothing more, which enables the others to exist and thrive, which enables the biome to exist and thrive. In short, the idea here is not, you know, that that we get we eat and kill and then we die and then we eat and kill and just in the super cycle thing. It's more along the lines of this is the pattern of balance between which animals and which plants, and which birds, and, and bugs, and all that fun stuff. All the things that are necessary in the right balance points. Even in real life, there have been efforts done by, uh, I don't know what to call them, preservation groups to cull numbers of certain animals from certain areas because they are over-hunting, or over-feeding, or over-trampling, or whatever, and that's throwing off the balance of that particular biome. Now, I know this all sounds weird, but I, 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 know, I know this sounds so stupid. It made the film make a lot more sense in my mind. Because at this point, the entire point of the Pride Lands and its whole setup is that it is all very carefully balanced against itself, like a house of cards. And that, then, is the real job of the king. And this is why the king is king. Because the king's job is to make sure that the hunters do exactly what they need to do, and no more, and no less and keep track of the herds, and keep track of what's going on where, and who's going to eat what, and blah, blah, blah. It's a giant management sim. God, that sounds like a fun game, actually, doesn't it? Sim Lion King? Actually, isn't there, like, a Sim Zoo game coming out soon? Anyways, point being, this is all relevant, because this, then, makes everything make sense with regards to the politics and the position. Now, this, then, of course, throws us immediately against uh, a couple of other things. So the first thing we have here is Scar. Scar... (laughs) Scar's lying in the shade, immediately after the scene where he says everything the sun touches is our domain. Cute. But other than that, Scar lies very overtly to Simba. So overtly, it's actually kind of pathetic. Frankly, it says more about how stupid Simba is than how smart Scar is. Simba then rushes off to Nala, and we see Nala and Simba. Let me just say really quick, I'll talk about the romance angle later, because of course I will but at least the two were friends from childhood and have known each other for a while, okay? It's the best we've had so far of these four films, all right? Anyways, has it only been four, really? I guess it has. Anyways, I feel like it's been a lot longer. These these are big things to to dive into. Holy crap, I guess I spent a lot of time on every video. So, <clears throat> Nala and Simba, who are, you know, getting along well, are an interesting dynamic because... First of all, they're grossed out by the concept of romance. And I wrote down the quote, I can't marry her, she's my friend. That made me smile. I like that. I like that. But we also note that she's better than him in basically every way. You caught that, right? She's smarter than him. She's the one who actually puts things together and figures things out, comes up with the plan, and probably wouldn't be deceived by Scar, and she's better in a fight. Now that makes sense. After all, she's a female lion. If you don't get it, uh, male lions are actually kind of pathetic in real life compared to female lions. My girlfriend once, in my ex-girlfriend obviously, many years ago, actually called me a female lion once. I wasn't sure how to take that. So, So they do this big song number. I just can't wait to kill my dad. And as they're singing, well, the whole point is about a lack of responsibility, isn't it? At this point in time, Simba is only interested in being king for what I like to call the benefits of rule, not to actually be ruler. I want you to keep that in mind, because that's going to help compare him to Scar. Then we see Cheech Marin and Whoopi Goldberg, who do an excellent job of the hyenas. I think I've mentioned this before, but this is the first film where they know really just opened the floodgates with regards to accepting as many large-name Broadway and Hollywood actors as they could. And this will be the trend for a while now. <laughs> arguably until like even the modern stuff, really. Although there's some variables in that. But you get the idea. They're like, all right, bring... I mean, there's a reason Mel Gibson is in Pocahontas, for God's sake. That was the plan. That was the modus operandi. I suppose I should mention something, by the way. I've mentioned, uh, uh, oh God, how do you say his name? I can never remember how to say his name. Kerensky? Katzenberg. That's it, Katzenberg. I've brought up Katzenberg before and how he is arguably one of the bigger reasons why the Disney Renaissance started. It's a good point to mention that this was the last film he had any direct influence on. I'll mention the points when we get there, because due to the layered nature of things, he would still have an influence on the next three films. But this was the last film he actually presided over, and he was ejected and ended up going over to DreamWorks. (laughs) I don't think that was the right move, but whatever. I've decided after some discussion, I'm not actually going to talk about him and why he left and all that. Because the simplest answer is politics. Moving on. Now. So, let's talk about the hyenas. You know, Cheech Martin. uh, Cheech Marin, excuse me. Or Marin. I don't actually know how to say his name. Cheech. And Whoopi Goldberg, Uh, obviously they're amusing, but also threatening. And there's this nice little song leitmotif that plays for them. But what I find most interesting about them is the film makes it very clear, especially through visual presentations, that the hyenas don't fit in the pattern. And the film never says it outright, but we get inferences on why they don't. They don't hold back. There are dozens upon dozens of hyenas, a whole mini kingdom of them. And they just eat and eat and eat without regard disrupting the balance of a particular biome. That's why they're over off on their own, doing their own thing, eating whatever happens to roam into their territory, and being hungry all the time. I actually, I know this sounds horrible, but I like to think that the hyenas in leaner times just eat each other. I mean, they're willing to eat lion, after all. Now... This then, uh, and of course the graveyard, the reason, it, reason it's such a barren te- territory is because no effort is being ma- ma- maintained in order to actually turn it into something good. I'm saying that wrong. No effort is put into maintaining it as something good. There we go. Let's get that sentence out there. So, big action sequence. Mufasa comes in. Did you know Frank Welker did all the lion wa- roars in this ki- film? I'm stuttering over my words. Frank Welker did all the lion roars in this film. It's very well done and mufasa of course is bitterly disappointed and we see one of the first big uh, visual presentations of the theme simba literally his, t- his tiny little paw print in this giant paw print of his father this then leads to scar and the hyenas this is part of why i say i have trouble really putting a finger on scar because his motives seem to shift depending on the scene we're in in some cases it seems that he wants to rule As in, he wants to be the one in charge. He thinks he can take care of this whole pattern thing better than his brother. He's smarter, after all. He's the one who has the brains. Why can't he be the one in charge, right? Then sometimes it seems like he's only interested in the benefits of rule. Lazing about, not actually wanting to be in charge, not actually wanting to make orders or anything. Just, oh, whatever. Enjoying his throne, so to speak. And then, at other times, it seems like he's about the pride. No pun intended. I, I don't mean the pride of lions. I mean his pride. This, th- there's a point at which uh Sarabi flat out says, we need to leave. The, the herds have moved on. There's no food here. We're all going to die. And he says, then we will all die. I refuse to leave my kingdom. So I'm not really sure what's going on with Scar there. It's entirely possible that he's just an inconsistent character. But as ever, I would like to hear your guys' thoughts and his opinion, or your opinions on his motives. God, I am really stuttering over my words. I apologize, guys. So, Simba... (laughs) This is actually going to sound really horrible. This is the point where I actually jotted down in my notes how weird it is that Simba actually has both his parents, which is the first time we've seen that in a Disney film. Right after... That scene, right after Be Prepared, is when I jotted that down. It didn't occur to me until after I wrote down the note. Oh. So, before I talk about the scene itself, let me just say that this is another good example of the fact that Scar is stupid. His whole plan here has way too many moving parts. Way too many ways that this can go badly. And he also insists on improvising to try and make it work rather than just going with the flow. It would have been very easy for, any, for a number of people to see him and to put two and two together about the fact that things weren't really as they should be. People have been making fun of this for years, of course, and I'm not trying to do that. I'm just saying Scar got lucky. He wasn't smart. So... Three years overall were spent on the computer graphics and the engine and the animation and the patterns. They wrote a script for each animal, uh, in each wildebeest. They were actually rendered in, you know, animation format, but there was, the, their patterns and their movement were designed by computer. Years they spent de- de- developing the Now, obviously, they did this because they wanted to use this going forward, so it wasn't just for this film, but a huge amount of time and effort to make that stampede exactly as terrifying as it looks. I'm going to go and admit something. When I saw this this time, I started getting chills. That stampede scene is brilliant. It looks like... It, it. It's exactly as terrifying as it should be. Small little anecdote. When I was a kid, well, I mean, at this point, I was in... Uh, yeah i was a teenager at this point when this film came out i was watching this in the theater i i did something that i didn't don't actually do all that often when it comes to watching something in a film i audibly gave a very loud oh my god you know just as and just now the good news is i, I was really embarrassed about this i was like oh my god I, but i was not the only one several people in the theater were like oh my god just because seeing the wave of the, 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 the stampede, and, and they treat it exactly as terrifying as that should be. Oh, my God. Now, earlier in the film, Mufasa makes a point about uh, bravery doesn't mean you're not afraid. Bravery just means, you, well, they don't actually say the, the rest of it, but he does, if Mufasa flat out admits he was afraid. Bravery doesn't mean not being afraid. So, when we see Mufasa's face and hear his voice, he is terrified. Of course he is. That's his boy down there. Why wouldn't he be terrified? Does that stop him? Not for a millisecond. That's important. Because this shows what Simba needs to live up to. It's not being the king in the sense of, I will rule on high as sultan. It's the fact that Simba, for much of his character arc, is going to be so dominated by his fear that it will control him and that he will run away from it and not jump into the, pe- the the herd of wildebeest to save his son, metaphorically speaking. So, he charges in. Long live the king. Now, what happens shortly after that, the music cuts out. And then there's, he's, you know, Simba's going down, sees his father. His father isn't moving. Um... There's uh, very, very light strings music starts to play as he reaches out to him. When he starts, cries out, begging for help, there's this echo, 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 emphasizing in in a very clear and obvious manner how alone he is, and how alone he feels now that his father has left him. He curls into his dead father's arms and just lays there, completely incapable of doing anything other than just sobbing. For 2 minutes and 57 seconds, Mufasa's death is presented on camera. I counted. They really go into this one. Now, this is interesting. A couple little anecdotes. I have heard competing reports that say this was either shorter or longer. Given the sources, one of those is probably lying, so I'm just going to mention both, and you can decide which you want. But the idea is the shorter version was apparently not sad, and the longer version was apparently so sad that they had to escort some of the children watching the screening out of the room because they were crying so hard. Up to you. I will go ahead and say something that I have no shame in saying. Yeah, it still hits. Mufasa's death is probably one of the better character deaths in films. They build up to it. They have a massive, terrifying, awesomely presented scene that is the lead-up to the death itself. He is then brutally murdered off-camera, but we see the lead-up to it. We see him being tossed into there, and we know what's going to happen. And then again, they spend almost three solid minutes, 2 minutes 57 seconds, just hammering the point in, audibly, visually. The voice acting on the kid, I forget his name, but he was one of the biggest name uh, kid actors at the time, and so he throws himself into it. You can just feel the despair there. And then, on the off chance the youth actually started to recover a little bit, out of the fog, Scar shows up. Now, they do a cute musical thing here. The light string bit that started, a little bit of a choir starts to build into it, and then when Scar shows up, the strings go away, And all that's left is the choir. And it plays a little bit as Scar approaches. And then Scar, who is all ominous and intimidating, starts to play the concerning uncle, at which point the strings come back in. It's okay, it's okay. And then when he leaves, the music just kind of slowly fades away completely and then immediately jumps into a repetition of the hyena theme as he sends them after to kill him. Musically, visually, audibly, brilliantly done. There's a reason this this scene has so much impact even to this day. Honest question, how many of you still get hit by this scene? I'd really love to know. So, Scar then almost immediately pushes for the hyenas to interact with the lions. And even with this first scene, we see just how much the the hyenas outnumber the lions and the immediate problem that is presented by having a sudden influx of a large a large group of predators into an environment then we meet timon and pumbaa and the comedy section starts now this was smart <laughs> especially for the time remember the mufasa death thing that that hit there's a reason it's so memorable um the Mufasa death thing was a big, heavy, dark, somber moment. So it is very natural that they immediately follow through with a fairly prolonged comedic section, starting with Timon and Pumbaa, who do a pretty good job of it, breaking the fourth wall, singing, joking around. I had a quick thought about Timon and Pumbaa. You see, Timon calls himself the smart one, but he's actually very stupid and selfish. Whereas Pumbaa is portrayed as the dumb one, but he's the one who is kind and observant. Huh, that sounds familiar. I'm sure this was done unintentionally, but it reminds me a lot of the parallel between Scar and Mufasa. If Scar and Mufasa had actually gotten along with each other and Scar was not evil enough to want to kill his brother to take over his throne. I know, that's not that evil. That's just politics, right? We'll get there. So then they they have the Hakuna Matata thing. That's interesting to me. Because I had several notes about... I, I usually don't have notes about these songs in general. It's like, okay, musical number. You know, I, I don't have much to say about them for the most part. Hakuna Matata, though, is interesting, because on the first hand, my first thought was, you can't have a nightmare if you never dream. Or, in other words, the age-old concept of, you can remove the bads by removing the goods, too, and just be nice and neutral and gray, right? But the thing is, that's not what happens here. Instead, he seems to be lighthearted and happy and silly and fun, and then it kind of clicked with me. Hakuna Matata is a variant on the aforementioned phrase. Instead, it means that I'm going to not take any kind of responsibility for anything, which means I'll be fine at the expense of others. Because of his actions, well, there's going to be a decent amount of suffering and pain for a large amount of people, because he refused to stand up and take responsibility and do what is right. In short, it's not a matter of choosing to get rid of good and bad. It's a matter of choosing yourself and saying screw it to everything else. It is ultimately a very selfish philosophy, which is exactly how the film tends to portray it. Whew. Now, and then they go eat bugs. Can I just say gross? But um, yeah, I know real-life people eat bugs. I don't care. It's still gross. They also do something clever. They need a time skip to happen. I did a little looking into it. It's somewhere around four years, give or take, which is pretty impressive, actually. And they needed to have that time skip happen so he could be an adult lion. So they do it in the middle of the song. Okay, that's that's cute. They also... This is when we cut back to Scar. Now we see what Simba's been up to. Let's see what Scar's been up to. This is when he is interested in the benefits of rule, not the act of ruling itself. Oh, go eat Zazu. It's the lioness's job to hunt. Ugh, why do you come to me with these little concerns of actually running the country? Oh, Chauncey, the chocolate icing. And that's how he's portrayed in this scene. I... I'll come back to this point. So then we go back and we see uh, the buddies, you know, Timon and Pumbaa. Now, what's interesting about this is I have a note here that says they're buddies, not real friends, because you can't be real with buddies, right? How many of you have a good working relationship or a good buddy, you know, uh, what's the term below friendship? I can't think of it all of a sudden. Uh, Acquaintance with, like, someone, either online or in your guild. Or maybe it's in your job or amongst your family or whatever, right? Now I want you to picture going to that person and saying something real, something that actually matters to you and you're really into, and it's, you just want to get it off your heart. Can you, can you imagine doing that? Because I can't. <laughs> that's the point. Now, at first glance, this is because Timon and Pumbaa are not real friends, but that's not true. They are real friends. No. The real reason is Simba. Well, he hasn't, he's still wrong, basically. He is still having his own issues here. He cannot open up to these people, even though they are real friends. They show this later on in the film. They are actually there for him. So, he could open up to them. He just doesn't realize that yet. So Pumbaa goes and hunts the beetle as Nala hunts him. And Nala comes in. Nice little chase sequence. And of course, Nala manages to win the fight against him. Why wouldn't she? She's better than him. Which is, of course, how he identifies her so quickly. Now, this is a nice bit. He never got over his grief and shame. And he is so locked away at that that it's still hurting. And I want you to remember that point for a minute. Um, Oh yeah, by the way, they fall in love immediately. Of course they do like I said, at least they were friends as kids. That's something. But for them to just kind of like, Hi! Love is a little bit... Disney. (laughs) Just to put that as nicely as I can. Why do all of these films have some kind of love story in them? Even Mulan, which has it really downplayed, has a love story in it. Good lord. Anyways. Nevertheless, I do want to say something about the love scene. Because... There's a song that plays, Can You Feel the Love Tonight, by Elton John. Did you know that scene was actually cut from the film? I didn't, until I was researching this. Turns out, just a few weeks, less than a month, before the film actually hit theaters and they were, you know, pushing out the final copies, Elton John was watching a, a, a cut of it and was like, Where's the song? Where's, where's, you, you feel the Where's the song? And Elton John personally went to the st- creative staff and went to, uh, not What's-His-Face, who, I've already forgotten his name, but the new guy who was in charge, which I don't remember his name, and was like, Please, please, get this back in. This is, you don't understand. I, it's, this is bad. And he just lobbied for it and lobbied for it. And they're like, Okay, okay, okay. And at the last minute, they cut in Can You Feel the Love Tonight. Did you know he won an award for that, film, that song? Anyways, <clears throat> so you know Simba rushes off. You said you'd always be there for me. Now what I like about this is at first he seems to be directing his blame elsewhere, anywhere but himself, but in the end he really does accept, it is my fault. It is my fault. I'm the reason you're not there anymore. I'm the reason everything is wrong and there's no food and scars in charge and everything is just awful. It's all me. And the weight of it crushes him. There's a nice little bit where magic happens. Quick aside, by the way. This film is probably the least magic film we've seen. Uh, There's no probably. This is definitely the least magic scene uh, film of the the four we've gone through so far for the Disney Renaissance. There's only really two tiny elements of magic in it. One is the wind carrying the scent of of, uh, Simba to Rafiki. And the other is, you know, Mufasa coming out of the clouds. Other than that, it's actually very much down to earth, which is interesting because... This is my favorite of these films, and it's a lot of people's favorite. I'm not saying that's related. It's just interesting to think about in hindsight. So, you know, remember who you are. No, the real lesson, the real thing that hits wonderfully well is Rafiki's stick. Whap! Hey, that hurts. So what? It's in the past. No, I'm sorry, so what? It's in the pa- that, why'd you do that? It's in the past. Yeah, but it still hurts. Yeah, the past can hurt. What matters is what you learn from it. And then he swings the stick again, and he dodges it this time. That is so on the nose, and yet at the same time, it is so accurate. That right there is an incredibly valuable, legitimate life lesson. The past hurts, but what really matters is what you do about it, what you learn from it, that you learn from it. That is, ha, ah, I'm sorry, to t- it's so dumb because it's so obvious, but that just hit me like a stick. <laughs> so this is when Scar shifts over to pride. You know, uh, there's no food. We need to go. No, we will never leave. We will leave. Okay, here's my theory. I'll go ahead and admit it. I think Scar, as I've already said, is not intelligent. I think he wanted to rule. Then he got into a position of rule. And he just didn't care, or he wasn't interested in it, or he wasn't engaged in it. Or basically, he was like, this isn't fun. And so he just relegated it off to others and didn't rule. This is why the pattern is broken and why the biome starts to fall apart. Now, the way they show it in the film is a little bit much. It looks like they walked into frickin' Mordor, for God's sakes. And all of a sudden, it restores itself to the Shire by the end of the film. But whatever, whatever, it's always bothered me but it's clear that he wasn't doing his job. Instead, he decided well, screw all that. I'm just going to laze about and enjoy the benefits of rule. And then, because he wasn't ruling, the benefits of rule dried up. He was now faced with something, and it's the same thing Simba was faced with. You made a mistake. Because of your mistake, people are now suffering. What do you do about it? And Honestly, just like Simba originally did, Scar refuses to accept that. Refuses to accept responsibility and try to do anything to fix it. Instead, he insists stubbornly on continuing down the path because, by God, this is where we're going to go with it. And all of a sudden, his character does make a lot more sense, doesn't it? As ever, curious of your thoughts on my theory on Scar. Either way, Timon and Pumbaa are there to the end. Gotta do the luau. Um, (laughs) looking at my notes here, Uh, Scar is of course terrified of the idea of Mufasa, which probably says a lot, but utterly unafraid of Simba, which is amusing. Scar also couldn't help but rub it into Simba. You notice that? Scar had basically won, again, until he decided to go ahead and rub it in, and then he loses everything. And he is so short-sighted, which makes sense, given everything I just mentioned about his attempt to rule, benefit of rule, screw it, this is, you know, I'm, I'm not moving on thing, that he starts burning bridges, literally as well as figuratively, as fast as he possibly can, like it was going out of style. And so <clears throat> he tries to fight, he sells out the hyenas, and then the hero doesn't kill him. Now this is interesting, because the hero decides to banish him, and Scar is so unwilling to accept that, to be banished from my kingdom, that he then turns on Simba, which leads to Scar getting tossed over the cliff and being eaten alive. Forgive me for emphasizing that point. Disney villains tend to have horrible deaths in general, but this might be one of the most horrible. We only see the shadow, but the hyenas eat him alive. Anyways, And then things, things are all fixed. Yay. Despite my irritation with that last bit, and it still bothers me. It bothered me as a kid. I remember turning to Mum in the theater and being like, why is everything better now? <laughs> why didn't they just move on? Shh. But um, aside from that rather big flaw, I can see why this is such a well-revered movie. There are a a very small number of negatives to this film. In fact, upon repeat viewing and really going through it with analysis mode, I can only come up with one, and I just told it to you. This is an extremely well-crafted film, and it's no wonder it is such such a part of history, basically, is the way I want to put that. I hope you've enjoyed my pathetic, terrible, and awful thoughts. Oh yeah, just, just in case I don't say it, the people think I missed it. Obviously the pattern is restored when the ending ends the same way it begins. Book ends. Because the whole point is the circle of life. Yada, yada, yada. Anyways. <laughs> hope you've enjoyed, guys. I'll see you next time.